Hello and welcome to Anything That Moves, a Maniv Mobility podcast for the mobility curious. I'm your host, Mayor Dardashti. As a mobility-focused VC fund, we get to have all kinds of interesting conversations with founders, industry leaders, and other ecosystem players. The Anything That Moves podcast is our chance to bring more people into these conversations about the future of how people and goods get from here to there and back, faster, cheaper, and safer. Before we get started, the team at Maniv wants to hear from you. If you have feedback, or if you are the founder of a company in the mobility space, or even if you aspire to be one, please reach out to us directly via the form on our website, www.maniv.com. That's M-A-N-I-V.com, and click Get in Touch. Hi, I'm here today with David Megerman of Differential Ventures, and we'll talk more about where else. Um, but it's nice to be with you, David. Thanks for joining Anything That Moves. No, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So I, I think before we start, the most useful thing we could do is to give a little bit of background uh, to the audience who, who might come from more of a mobility background on who you are, uh, why you might have some degree of authority in, in things related to uh, uh, AI, and uh, maybe even why you might have a dog in the fight, uh, uh, in the EV fight. Sure. Uh, no, happy, happy to give background. Uh, yeah, so I mean, I'm a, a deep technologist, uh, computer science background of a PhD uh, from Stanford University, did early work at, at University of Pennsylvania and at Stanford and, and at IBM in the speech group on uh, early data-driven approaches to natural language, pro- uh, natural language processing. Particularly, I worked on natural language parsing, which, uh, you know, we used to do that stuff. <laughs> we actually used to parse sentences. Um, and uh, I did, did some of the very early work coming up with uh, mathematical approaches. You know, back, back then people did linguistics um, and now they don't. Um, but what I, we realized, you know, a bunch of us at IBM were working on machine translation, speech recognition, uh, natural language processing, uh, named entity recognition, that sort of thing. And we realized that, you know, the, the techniques we were using were too early. The mathematics were really complex. Uh, computers were slow, there wasn't enough data, and a bunch of us realized that we were probably 10 or 15 years away from uh, being able to do the things we were doing, and not coincidentally, I think uh, about 15 years later, Siri came out. We really were kind of spot on with where we were, and in fact, a lot of the things, the techniques we rejected in terms of neural networks uh, and certain mathematical approaches um, that we thought didn't work, we were wrong about because it turned out we just didn't have enough data and enough computing power. So. Um, you know, I think that the, the last 10 years of AI um, and, and machine learning have kind of proven how right we were to leave the field um, because we just were like working with, uh, you know, uh, sticks and, and, uh, and, and fire when we needed to have nuclear power and, uh, and metal. So um, uh, a bunch of us left IBM and actually went to go join this quantitative hedge fund called Renaissance Technologies, which is uh, considered to be one of the best, if not the best hedge fund in the industry over time, 30 years of 40 some odd percent returns and founded by a very, very famous mathematician, Jim Simons. And I, I was there early on when they started building their equities trading systems and helped uh, do a lot of the engineering and system building, signal finding, optimization around uh, equities trading. Uh, but really, you know, my whole career has been about different um, applications of AI and machine learning and especially seeing uh, the failures of it, the, the overpromise and underdelivering over time, you know, Renaissance was an example, you know, kind of a, a negative example where, um, th- to be honest, they didn't do very complex things. And they, they, they were doing very simple, uh, you know, I can't talk about the details of what, what, what Renaissance did in terms of how they make money, but um, you'd be, if you knew anything about quantitative finance, about AI, you'd be amazed at how simple the systems are, how little complexity there is to 
the, the modeling and the, ma the mathematics and the algorithms there. And I think that just, you know, even further proves my uh, belief that uh, a lot of the power of complex AI systems is overestimated. And, you know, that, that when, when complex systems work, simple things also work. And when simple things don't work, probably the performance of complex solutions is, is somewhat of a mirage. And so that, that really, you know, just my whole career experience, uh, you know, leading up to the last few years, I've been doing venture investing, investing in early stage startups that are focused on uh, monetizing and deploying uh, AI systems. So let me, let me zoom in here with a question that's half a gimme question to help you establish your bona fides in this specific space, but also an interesting theoretical question here, uh, which is, you know, how generalizable is AI? I feel like AI is a catchphrase like 5G, where when you actually dig, dig in, there's more to it than, you know, than, than the general term AI. You know, how much overlap is there between different techniques, different verticals, different applications? You know, does, does a general background in AI, and, and I think the example, you know, you gave of, of financial algorithms, how, how relevant are financial algorithms to on-road debris? You differentiate between AI and machine learning. Um, you know, I had a, a professor at, at Stanford that said something that always stuck with me. He said that, you know, he was, he was a frustrated AI professor and, and researcher. He said that, it, that AI is always called AI until it works, and then it's called an algorithm. And, and I think that, you know, machine learning is a particular instantiation of an approach to AI, which is, you know, trying to learn from data to ad have adaptive algorithms. Artificial intelligence is just, you know, writing software that, that takes some intelligent task and automates it. Um, and that can be done with an expert system. It can be done with simply with an algorithm that is repeatable. It's, that, that's a, where the, the behavior that you're mimicking is deterministic. And so creating a deterministic algorithm is, is artificial intelligence. Um, but, you know, we typically think of, when we, when we talk about AI today, we typically think of a more like machine learning, where you're taking adaptive systems that are responding to data that are, that are either self-organizing new models on the fly or that are constantly being retrained with new data to reflect new realities about the, about the problem being solved. So I think, you know, when it comes to AI, I mean, AI is, is too general a concept to say whether it's generalizable or not. I mean, of course, it's generalizable. You know, the experience in, in trying to build AI systems in, in one domain is relevant to others because it's, just, it's engineering experience. It's, more, it's more, more of an engineering problem. But in terms of a, a data science approach, I think that the, the negative experience with data science are the most transferable pieces of it. To see how you think you have a model, you think you have a solution, it works, and then nine months later, it doesn't work at all, or it, it works differently. And you realize that the anchor of your model, the thing that you think you've discovered is not an absolute, but is uh, either an idiosyncrasy or a short-term phenomenon. Um, and this happens all the time in quantitative trading, where you have what you think is a predictive model that's just a truth about the financial markets, and you start betting on it, and then all of a sudden you start losing money. And it's because you took advantage of something that was either overfit or was just not a permanent phenomenon, but was just based on something short-term that went away. Um, and it's really hard to know the difference. And I think that, that, that observation is kind of a fundamental basis of my skepticism of kind of semi-autonomous and fully autonomous systems. So you're, you're getting exactly at, we should acknowledge that the core of this conversation, the seed of this, you know, of this conversation was a chat we had a couple of weeks ago where, where you said you're very skeptical of autonomy. Um, and, and I, I want to dig really deep there and I want to, mm -hmm. I really want to pick your brain there because I, I, I think it's pretty compelling to hear it stated that, that explicitly out loud, but let's define autonomy first, because I think that there's a lot of static in the field. Let's acknowledge that there are eight ass systems, there are systems that are there, you know, that you'll find in a 2015 Lexus that are there to help you stay in a lane, 
or you can go back to the, you know, the 90s, 80s and 90s on cruise control. Some degree of autonomy has existed for a long time. Some degree of a car helping you drive in some way. What we're, I think what we're describing that, that is where, where things get interesting, but also potentially uh, risky are, you know, we t- you can talk about level one through level five of autonomy with level five being the car is in absolute control of every decision. There is no human input in the system. And that, that's a little bit of, a, that's a fairy tale. Let's put that on the side. Level one, level two are more or less where we are now, where there are some functions being picked up by a car. And, uh, you know, at the risk of, you know, poking anyone in the eye, Tesla is somewhere between level, somewhere around level two right now, even its best systems. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and where we start talking about what, what you and I might call autonomy is level three, level four, where fundamentally the, the machine is being handed primary controls with either minimal user intervention or with none. And with, you know, maybe remote control where things go wrong. Um, that may right. be being the main distinction between level three, level four. So with that definition already in mind, why is it that you're skeptical that that current machine learning technology brings us there with enough data? So first of all, in a vacuum, let's take, let's take people out of the loop and just talk about computer systems. I am, um, I, mean, I, I drive a lot. Um, I, I drive just long distance a lot and I have a Tesla and I turn, turn on the, self, the uh, quote unquote self-driving all the time, mostly as a research, you know, I almost get myself killed a couple of times just because I want to do research, field data uh, acquisition to understand, you know, what, what works and what doesn't. Um, and those experiences have informed a lot of my opinions about this specific topic. Um, but, you know, I, I think that, that in a vacuum, if you just had the problem of self-driving, forgetting about adversarial, other, other human beings, um, I, I think that it is the problem I talked about with, with stock trading, that the world is evolving. Uh, the environment evolves as you're driving in new locations. Like you don't have every possible permutation of experience in your models. I mean, you know, the example that I, you know they've talked about recently, which I've actually experienced, and I didn't really understand understand what it was until I, I read this article about it. That you know they're going under tunnels. That um, the uh, self-driving features misinterpret the the walls of the tunnels and sometimes think they're obstructions, or if there's an obstruction near the, the side of a tunnel, it doesn't see the obstruction because it thinks it's part of the tunnel and causes accidents. Um, you know, the, the uh, con- continuity, the continuous nature of the world and the variability of the world tells me that if you train on 2014 to 2018 era roads in America or in Europe or wherever, uh, in five years, um, the roads may be very different. The kinds of things on the sides of the roads, the kind of things, you know, the way people interact on the roads, um, you know, I, I think just the world changes and models need to keep up. You know, when, when a stock trading system needs to adapt regularly because it's always being retrained and, you know, there's a, some half-life to the estimation so that, you know, as, as old phenomena phase out and new phenomena come in, you lose money while you're in that transition. You can tolerate that when you're making and losing money. You can't tolerate that when you're driving a 4,000 pound vehicle and it's occasionally getting into, into avoidable accidents. So I, I think that just from, a, just from a theoretical point of view of just, again, keeping humans out of the loop, just talking about the self-driving modeling, I think it's just too complex a system. The current machine learning methodologies are too superficial. Um, and, and this is part of my bias against, you know, I just really think that we have wildly overestimated the intelligence and I use that very cynically, you know, and, and with, with air quotes, you know, that it's not, you know, these systems are not intelligent. You know, neural nets are remembering data and weighting their memory of data, and they're not making complex oppositions. They're, they're, disco- they're, they're in, in, implicitly discovering substructure and, you know, self-organizing models, but not explicitly. 
And so they, they don't like draw conclusions about the reality of the world so that they can do reasoning. People, when they're driving, they're seeing a car. Like I, I, the other day I was driving and there was a car that was kind of like swerving in and out of a lane. He's probably like a, a, a driver that was falling asleep at the wheel. Um, and I was trying to figure out, is the guy drunk? Is he, is he falling asleep at the wheel? Is he um, just not paying attention? Is he on his phone? And that cognitive process of trying to evaluate the nature of that driver was something I was doing with like 5% of my brain. And once I figured out the guy was tired, he wasn't drunk, he wasn't on his phone, that, that determined how I was treating that driver. You know, whether I was going to try to zoom past him and get away from him, whether I was going to stay behind him and maybe like call the police if I thought he was going to like pull off the road. I think there, there are cognitive, there are, there are semantic analyses that we do as people. And once we categorize something, we then, you know, have decided that's, you know, 80, 90% what that's, what it is. And we make, you know, logical reasoning decisions based on that. Neural networks and machine learning models are not doing that. They're, but David, they're David, coming but can, up I, li- can I play devil's sure, advocate here, though? Because I feel like the story of software, and not just AI, but the story of software is, like you said, a world that is not digital, that is not binary, that is, you know, very much analog, and creating experiences or creating models or creating algorithms that, yes, you know, when you, when you say that you built an AI algorithm that can create a symphony, it's not literally going back and saying, what is the most aesthetically pleasing, you know, it's not a creative process in a human sense, but you, mm-hmm. but programs, software approximates the human experience. And these patterns approximate the human experience. And then it just becomes a question, not of theory, but uh, not, not, not of quality, but of quantity almost. Sorry. The other way, right. you know, if you get close enough to it, if you, if you get an AI uh, algorithm close enough to creating a symphony, it created a symphony. Right. And, no, I get what you're saying, but, but I get what you're saying, but, but it's a cost benefit analysis here. Like, you know, would you want um, our nuclear arsenal? I mean, if you choose like a, a, a you know, 1984 era a TV, a movie analogy, would you want, a, a, you know, our, our nuclear arsenal controlled by a neural network based AI system? Um, you know, I think, I mean, obviously the answer is no, because while it may do a better job of people in terms of like taking emotions out of responses, like, you know, a misinterpretation of data that caused a nuclear war would be like a heinous, uh, you know, uh, unthinkable tragedy that we wouldn't want to you know, like risk. Yeah, I'd rather have people in the loop, um, you know, making these decisions with humanity and, and with cognitive thought than, than leave it over to a, a pattern matching system that could get the patterns wrong for some idiosyncratic way, you know, re- reason. So I think, I think, you know, creating a sympathy has no stakes to it. You know, if you make a bad symphony, it's not the end of the world. You know, if you, again, if you're driving a 4,000 pound vehicle and you make a mistake, you know, even if you prevented 14 accidents, which I think is probably the, the reality that, that self-driving, you know, the, the limited self-driving cars now probably prevent more accidents than they cause. But the one accident you cause that was because of an absolutely ludicrous misinterpretation of data is going to kill the whole industry. I, I agree from you from a cultural perspective. There's something about, there's something very uncanny about an accident that a human could have prevented. We don't, we don't give the same credit the other way around. Like you said, if there are 14 deaths right. prevented and one cause in an uncanny way, we don't, we don't make that, a, you know, it's not, it's not, we don't call it an even deal. But my question here really is like, isn't there a point where, you know, and we can talk about whether it's just solving edge case after it, it maybe it's a game of whack-a-mole, but, but even, even on the more fundamental level, like there's also a balance here between physics and software, right? That, you know, when you talk about how do you build a, an autonomous system, there, there are two ways to do it. And this is way oversimplifying and I'm probably getting pretty close to the edge of my, of my depths here. But you can either build a system um, that has minimal data input and just really, really complex algorithms making the most out of that data, 
and putting together the best pattern they can from whatever level of data they have or maximizing data input into the system and then possibly relying on less complex AI or less complex uh, machine learning algorithms. Do you give any credence to the idea that, you know, relying more on physics and less on software, you know, could yield, again, there is no absolute safety here, but could yield a better result? Yeah, I think a better result, yeah. I think, I think that Tesla's decision to remove sensors from their cars and to rely, rely exclusively on video is the exact opposite of the direction they should be going in. That, you know, if you're going to have a dumb person effectively encoded in, in, in a system because you have vision, you know, adding any number of different sensory systems that could make a, help a computer catch up with what it's missing out by not being an intelligent person is, I think, part of the solution to making it more um, competent to get it closer to the level of human performance. So I, I think that's a mistake that, that Tesla's making, which I hope they reverse uh, ground on it. And if competition wants to you know, get ahead of them, I think adding more kinds of sensors and having more data um, that they can learn from would be ideal. Of course, you have to collect data once you deploy those sensors. So it's a, it's a long process. But I, I think that the question is, is there enough signal in the data to self-organize the structure of the models to make the decisions well. And, and that's something that I have a lot of experience in the negative of seeing, you know, in, in certain financial markets and certain kinds of predictions at certain timescales where there just was, it wasn't that there wasn't enough data. There was all the data in the world. It's that there wasn't enough signal um, and there was too much randomness and noise. And, you know, when, when you think you've got a model, then the subprime crash happens or, you know, some quantitative strategy dumps, you know, a few billion dollars of, 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 uh, of uh, uh, positions on the market and causes a big impact event or, you know, a war happens or a natural disaster or COVID, you know, half the industry shut down because of COVID. Like there are, there are exogenous, exogenous events in, in, in the financial industry that make all the self-organized models we discover useless at the time we need them the most. And I, I fear that there's a, an analog to that in, in autonomous vehicles where, you know, like an example is like, you know, whenever it's raining, my self-driving turns off my Tesla. And that's exactly when I need it the most. Not, not just to, to drive by itself, but to help me drive better. You know, that, that um, you know, I, I can drive pretty, pretty okay in, in the rain, but when it's really torrential downpour, there's some visibility I don't have. It would be great if the autonomous systems in my car would be an addition to my sensors, would show me things that I can't see and would help me drive better in the rain. But it basically says, you know, oh, my cameras are too blurry because of the rain, I'm shutting off. And so I think that's the, you, you want to have more and more data to supplement what you're doing. I think if you're looking for like level two, level three, you know, kind of kind of performance, you know, aiming towards supplementing the, the human would be a better goal than, you know, than trying to create autonomy. Um, because I think that humans, you know, I, I don't think we'll ever have a situation where it won't be valuable to have a human being in the driver's seat. Um, you know, maybe I've, I've heard of long haul trucking and certain certain situations where there's a value, but even in those situations, like my, my father was a taxi driver, so I have a soft spot in, in, in my heart for for uh, you know people sitting in the driver's seat um, navigating the roads. Um, but I do think that it's not whatever you're doing. I think the cost of having a person there is never going to be prohibitive. Maybe you have a, a virtual person there, like on a video camera, you know, seeing seeing the input and, and directing it. But I, I just think that that the the goal of full autonomy um, is not necessarily even a good goal, uh, whether whether it's achievable or not. You mentioned you know exogenous events in in the financial markets. You know how inherent is is the problem that you're laying out here to the extent that is there is there some kind of exogenous event in in autonomous systems development or in or in theoretical machine learning architecture 
that would make you say, you know what, this is a solvable problem. It might take five more years or it might take this kind of shift. But is there something, what kind of event would make you rethink your position here? Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know if there's an event. I think that there's the fundamental question is that I, I, I ask, you know, about every, every AI system I see, every, every machine learning based system I see is, is there enough data to solve the problem? Meaning is the signal to noise ratio high enough for any machine learning technique, one that exists today or one that hasn't been developed yet to do it? You know, the answer is probably yes, because people do it. So then the question is, are current machine learning techniques capable of constructing the intermediate stages, the intermediate states that human beings do and enhance on them. That's where I think we fail. I think that neural nets is, you know, like, like an example of something I saw, someone, someone was um, doing a, a speech recognition system where they were ignoring phonemes and they were basically going, building neural nets that were training on sound, on, on the sound of voice and predicting semantics. And I thought that was the most ludicrous thing in the world because obviously we know, at least we know there are phonemes. Like there are certain states that, that we know exist that are you know, clearly defined. And I think that current machine learning technique makes it hard to inject human semantic or structural or logical reasoning into the learning process. So I think we need to come up with a more advanced machine learning methodology that could create a hybrid of taking things that we're confident we know about the world, like an ontology or some kind of a set of inference rules and knowledge and, and, and facts about the world, and then do the full power of the self-organizing of neural networks on top of that to add structure to it. And I think that, so, uh, I think a, 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 that's, that's artistry. That's a hard thing to do for a person anyway, but I think the current machine learning techniques aren't really built to do that. I'll tell you from conversations in the industry, I don't know what's happening under the hood of Tesla. I, I have no particular insights there at all. Um, and it could be that it's totally hands-off on the data. But, you know, there, there is a whole autonomy industry outside of Tesla. And there, the name of the game there is, how do you mark this data? How do you go from unstructured data to somewhat structured data, where when it goes into the algorithm, when it goes into the systems, they know this is a left-hand turn, that was a problem because X, and that's a pedestrian. And that data right. goes in smarter than simply being parsed by a system. Now, the downside of that is and this is what a couple of startups that, that I can, you know, that we've interacted with are trying to address is that that's a pretty manual system. You know, it's pretty hard to get data at scale like that. You, you need to have armies of people. Yeah. That, that's not the problem, though, actually. You know, and, you know, this is like this goes back to my, my work in, in natural language processing back in the 90s. When people realized that syntactic analysis was a waste of time and the real kind of holy grail, intermediate holy grail was semantics. They realized they needed to come up with semantic, semantic ontology, the semantic annotation. And the next 10 years was spent with a bunch of really smart people doing some really stupid things around making mistakes about how to do ontologies for semantics. Um, you know, that is a whole science unto itself. And if you have random startups with isolated teams trying to do their own ontologies, you're going you're gonna to end up spending a lot of effort doing a lot of, you know, wasting a lot of time doing a really bad job of that. You know, if there was an international effort on a collaborative scale to create the definitive ontology for annotating driving data, I think that would be a stepping stone to then building a database, you know, a, you know, a, a training set, which then you could start then designing machine learning algorithms to take advantage of the combination of information in that data set 
to, to, to do a better job of learning models for, for self-driving. But I think that's a multi-step process. And I think we're fumbling around like we're in the early 90s of semantic analysis in, in the self-driving industry where people are thinking they'll do it on their own. And I think that's, they're going to do it. They're going to do, I mean, they're, they're, I'm sure they're very smart people, but it's not about, it's not raw intelligence. It's a matter of like collaborative, having people show everyone else what they're doing and having people point out what's stupid about it or what's missing about it. And then iteratively building up a, a good ontology and, and labeling scheme for driving data. Look, I mean, something we mentioned, you mentioned in passing, and you know, there's nothing theoretically sexy about this. You can do a lot with very limited, uh, with, with very with with vertically limited and geographically limited autonomy. You know, whether it's mm-hmm. low speed autonomy, whether it's autonomy within very defined areas or very defined use cases. You mentioned long haul trucking, and by the way, I agree with you on long haul trucking. You don't have to take the the driver out of the cab for it to be very interesting to have right. a basic autonomous system in trucking with a driver sure. inside. The economics still makes sense. Uh, but, you know, even vertically focused or task focused or geographically focused autonomy, I mean, that's what probably what people are going to see in the next couple of years. And Robotech's the only one version of that. Yeah, l- l- let me just comment on that, because I think it's an important um, uh, observation that I learned years and years ago when I was looking at machine translation uh, back in the 90s. Um, this is something experiment that, that IBM did. IBM at the time was competing with Systran. That was their main competitor for, uh, for machine translation systems. And... It was well understood, at least certainly within within IBM, probably within Systran too, that IBM's machine translation system was far better than Systran as like a computer translation system. The difference was that Systran had a team of people that would post-process the machine translation text and were really good at taking the output of Systran system and making it into something readable so that they could so that they could have customers using their machine trans, you know, their their semi-automated machine translation uh, data. IBM was doing something similar, but they learned something really interesting that machine that IBM's and they, they learned this also from speech recognition that when you have automated transcription systems, either either speech recognition or machine translation that are too good, if the error rate is too low, the people fixing the errors get numb. They they need more work to do. If if they're doing if they're actively thinking, you know, consistently being challenged by bad translations or bad transcriptions, then they're really engaging the job. When, when the error rates get down to like sub 5%, they, they do a worse job and they can't get a, 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 to the 99 percentile in accuracy because they don't have enough to do. And I think we're seeing that with Tesla now. We're seeing that the self-driving is bad, but it's good enough that people like stop paying attention and there's not enough for them to do. And so then when they needed the most, they're not like they're reading a story or they're watching a movie or they're playing a game, whatever, and they're not really paying attention. And so my fear is like for something like long haul trucking, you know, what are you going to have the truck driver do so that the the one, you know, the 0.1% of the time um, or, or 0.01% of the time he needs to do something, he's not like, you know, asleep or, or, uh, or uh, you know, reading a magazine, doing something else. Um, when he should be paying attention. So I think that, that you know, that's where like, you know, I, I drove like a, a, a Nissan car with like adaptive cell, you know, uh, cruise control. And I found that experience to be much more soothing and comforting than when I was driving my Tesla in some ways, because I had to do so much. I was engaged in driving. It was an easy thing to do, but I was driving. When I'm in my Tesla, on, in all honesty, sometimes I'm not driving. And that's when it gets dangerous. I mean, first of all, human machine interface is huge here. But I think part of the question also on, on an AI level is, you know, th- there's been a lot of debate in the last couple of years about black box AI and the ability of AI to say how it's making decisions and how confident it is about its decisions. You know, it, it, is the state of the industry there where you could realistically expect the system to deliver a confidence interval 
uh, to the user. Even assuming this is a system that's level three, level four, 99.9% .9 of the time, the driver's not engaged. They're not necessarily even expected to be hands on the wheels. But, you know, is it a realistic expectation theoretically for these systems to be able to give a confidence interval and to say, look, I'm making decisions now that I can't stand behind. This is, you know, be ready that in, in three minutes you might have to step in. Well, it does that um, already. Like I said, it turns off when it's raining, when there's, you know, uh, there's this phenomenon in Tesla where it, it kind of stops in the middle of the highway for no reason, it seems. And it turns out it's because there's no one behind me and it thinks the car in front of me is going to cut into my lane. But and my so, question, David, is what one level abstracted from that? Do you do you uh, think it's realistic to expect systems to be able to say, I'm making all kinds of decisions. I'm 30% confident in the decisions I'm making, and you should be aware of that. Um, so in, so in, in some, for solving some problems, yes. But I think that the reasons why you can't solve self-driving is the reason why you can't do that well in self-driving. Like, you know, that you, you have to, it, the, 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 your ability to do that depends on your ability to understand what you're predicting. And I think that's where the, the level of granularity in what the self-driving sensors are seeing compared to what it's predicting is too, too remote. It's too far away. I think that, that it, its estimates would be more often wrong than right. And so you'd have to have error bars in your error bars, which would make them kind of pointless. I think, I think it's, it's, a good, it's a good goal, but uh, you know, I think the, the value of machine learning, and this, uh, there was some, I went to a machine learning conference and there was a philosopher who gave this really interesting talk. And basically his, his premise was that trying to have explainable AI is exactly the opposite of what you should do. AI should be augmenting human intelligence and it should be doing it in ways which are so far from human intelligence that it would be pointless to try to explain them. Because if you could explain them, then they're too human. And I thought there was a lot of merit to that argument. I see the counterpoint to it as well. But I think that, that there's a sense in which what we're doing with self-driving is how it's working right now is so non-human, so non-intuitive, that I think that trying to explain it with those kind of error bars would be too hard to do right now. I, that's where I think that if you had a layer of semantics, like you said, that these startups are starting to like do semantic annotation of data, if you could have an anchor of understanding of what the data is you're predicting, then I think you could start putting error bars because you could say, I think this is, you know, phenomenon, you know, 342 with 80%, you know, probability. And then you could, you know, do do a fuzzy logic inference and propagate probabilities and get an estimate of how likely you think you understand the situation. But without those intermediate states being labeled semantically, um, I don't think that you know from the intermediate computations, you don't, you don't have any likelihood understanding. So you just have like an end-to-end, -end, like you say, you, you have a prediction at the end and you say, okay, I think this is a 30% likelihood, but you don't really know what you think is happening because there's no semantics attached to it. So that's where I think that you need to have these, you need to get rid of the hidden layers. You know, the neural networks have, you know, incredibly deep hidden layers. You need to su supplement those hidden layers with anchors in those hidden layers that are things we know about so we can explain them. So I want to put a, a bookmark here because I think any conversation that's sufficiently theoretical um, that we're having conversations about the possibility of autonomy as it's being discussed, you know, I, I want to be able to place an anchor and say, you know, what... What could you see? Um, what would convince you? Forget about what would convince you that it could work. What what actual you know four wheels on the road phenomenon would make you say, you know what? I don't have a theoretical answer for why, but this seems to work. What would make you say? Forget about theoretically what would be interesting. Uh, boots mm -hmm. on the ground. If you saw Waymo doing X, what would get you excited? I mean, really, it, it's there's nothing they could do because. What they would have to do is have a year of large numbers of people driving self-driving cars on the roads without having, you know, kind of significant failures, 
significant ac accidents. And there's no path from here to there. I mean, that's, that's the problem with this, with the way we've gone about, you know, trying to deploy self-driving is that we're trying to do it incrementally with people on the road, building like, you know, incremental improvements. And I, there's no path there. I, I actually went to a, a talk with the founder of Mobileye a few years ago and made a proposal, which I, I think almost may be coming to pass in, in some small way, that what you need to have happen is a billionaire needs to buy a city and um, take every square inch, square foot of that city and line it with sensors and emitters and then make it so that no one can come into the city driving their own car and have every car be autonomous. And then from the ground up, build a system that uses the intelligence of all cars communicating with each other, all you know, um, intersections, all traffic lights, all everything just being one big network system. And then you could, I think you could prove, that to me would be, would convince me that you could do self-driving. You realize that on some level, on some level, you're, you're pointing out the absurdity of the situation we put ourselves in, which is the underlying assumption of autonomy is autonomy with almost no help, right? Now, autonomy has been happening in factories for 50 years because you put a wire on the ground and a robot follows right. the wire. If we're willing to put right, the infrastructure exactly. in, we don't need autonomy. The whole idea right. here is we've created a situation where we're not willing to take any public investment to go and build the infrastructure that would make autonomy easy. So we're going to go and say, let's build a crazy system to jerry-rig a city or to jerry-rig a vehicle that can drive on its own with zero help. Right. It doesn't take a billionaire to build it, to put wires in the road. We just chosen not to do that. Right. You, you need someone who has the, auto the autonomy to build, to, to like, they have to buy the city because they have to have the, the autonomy to like implement the system without anyone getting in the way. No votes, no, no, no citizens voting against them. Like it's got like, this is where, like Disney could do it. Like you could have like, you can imagine like a, a Disney park, which was like, you know, large enough, like D Disney World to take, take a whole section of the park and just make it into a, a model city with uh, self-driving cars. You could do it in Canada or so find some, some remote area where it's like underpopulated and just build out a build build out infrastructure. But David, um, the paradox of those situations is that an environment that controlled, Disney already has an autonomous vehicle in Disneyland. It's called a monorail. If you're controlling the, the context that much, you might no, as well just build no, a but, fixed but, system. But but the monorails can only go certain places. I'm talking about, you know, you basically having a monorail, which is like a, a grid covering the entire space. Monorails are just one line traveling you know, from, 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 from a set of places. So, you, you, you know, but I, I think that it's, it's, it's almost a solvable, it's only a little bit more, a little bit harder than the monorail problem. You know, once, once you have enough sensors and enough control of the environment, it's a, it's a computable system. Um, anyway, I, I do want to cover one more thing, because I think there's, there's an element to autonomy, which, you know, the way it's currently being deployed, which I, I think is an important thing to, to talk about. And that's the, the human factor of advers the adversarial nature of driving. And I think it's important, you know, people spend a lot of time talking about cybersecurity and the AI systems gaming each other and um, attacking networks and so on. If you've ever gone on a long drive on the Jersey Turnpike or on, you know, a major highway, um, you know, there, there are like, you know, a few hundred people in your general vicinity and you are in one big adversarial situation. You're trying to get in front of people. You're trying to avoid hitting them. You, you know, someone seems to slight you and then you get road rage and you want to try to like, you know, attack them and you want to, you know, you know, tailgate them or whatever, like there's any number of adversarial things going on with people driving cars on a highway. And there's also just this phenomenon in the last couple of years of people just being angry and just wanting to like mess things up. And I think my big fear about autonomous vehicles, if they become successful enough that they get deployed on a grander scale, that you will have people who will be studying by getting a, a self-driving car and studying the failures of it, what can trick a self-driving car like this phenomenon with tunnels or with like, you know, police cars on the side of the road or, 
or you know car service people you know helping people on the side of the road you know you'll find the gaps in the the sensors or the reasoning in the in the self-driving system and you will cause accidents just be malicious and i don't know I, I, the the systems are so immature even if they were like 10 times more mature they'd still be so immature that i fear that that would be a, a likely probable outcome for years to come if you were to deploy these cars uh, more regularly people people are just bad you know there are bad people out there i mean people on average are good i think but, but a lot of people there are a lot of bad people out there and i think that these systems are incredibly susceptible to being baited and i'd say this also from the experience of, of stock trading where you know there were times back in the day where people knew our trading times they like actually would pay our brokers on the floor of the exchanges to to find out when we traded and they would front run our trades and and manipulate our trades because they knew when we were trading and so you know when there's when there's profit or when there's evil intent you know people are very ingenious about how they can game systematic systems and you know these self-driving cars are a very easy to model uh, systematic system that um i think people would you know in very dangerous ways take advantage of this is why we can't have nice things yeah, it's, it's a problem. I agree with you. <laughs> yeah. David, thank you so much uh, for your time, for your thoughts, and uh, happy to keep this conversation going. No, I, pre I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to speak. I, it's, a, it's a, as you can see, a, a topic I'm passionate about, and I would love nothing more than to be wrong because I, 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 I love the technology. I enjoy my Tesla. I've had every Tesla model they've made, and I've used them all and, and used all their features, and it's a fascinating area. I just wish we were doing it better. And I hope that, you know, with the, the work that you do at Beneath Mobility and that the, the work researchers are doing, hopefully in the years and decades to come, we can get better and better technology. All right. Thanks so much, David. Okay. Be well. Thank you to producer Lauren Luz for making this episode happen and to Naomi Lazarov for post-production help. If you like their work and were willing to put up with mine, Please rate and subscribe to Anything That Moves on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or whichever platform is winning the podcast war this week. Once again, for feedback or to reach out for investment, please go to maniv.com and click Get In Touch. You can also find us on Twitter at Maniv Mobility, LinkedIn, and Medium. Thanks for listening.